0: We've arrived at our last session, if we can finish it today, Lord willing. This is another parable illustration, so you treat parables differently, slightly differently. It's a different genre, and you want to look at the whole story, if you can, in one look. So we've done that with the other two parables in Matthew chapter 25. And I gave you a long introduction to this one. In fact, we got into some of the verses because it helps introduce us. So if you haven't turned to Matthew chapter 25, you might turn there. And I've said uh, that this parable, like the other two, are notoriously misinterpreted and sometimes misapplied, although this one, the application is often valid, but Oftentimes, expositors don't give you the background and the whole thrust of why this parable came about and where it's located. It's very important to know that it's in the Olivet Discourse, and it's in the portion of the Olivet Discourse, in fact, the last part of it, that deals with application. So it has some applicational value, obviously. It's in the portion that is less doctrinal, if you will, and it's more, in other words, how should I apply the doctrine that's been taught, which, as I've said before, this is a pattern of scripture. You can break down the Book of Romans this way, the most theological book of the whole Bible. It has predominantly a doctrinal section, but it also has a practical or applicational portion. The last part of the Book of Romans is more applicational, similar to the Albert Discourse, Book of Ephesians, very similar. Half of it is doctrinal, second half is applicational. So you have to have the right mindset, the right understanding, the right theology, the right understanding in order to be able to know how to respond, how to act. That's always the case, biblically. And you can see something of that even in the Old Testament. So that's where we're looking. And in that, somebody asked last week, distinguishing different judgments. Now, most people, when they think of judgment, they think of one final judgment at the end of all things. Well, if you have a more accurate understanding of Scripture, you realize that there are a series of judgments. They're not all at the same time. Now, they're all at what the Bible calls the end of the age. So, they're all within a relatively close time, but not entirely. In fact, one of the major judgments of all time already took place 2,000 years ago. The major judgment of all of history took place when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. All of the Old Testament anticipates the death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. He bore what you and I deserve on the cross. And when we trust in him, we are set free and don't face that judgment. And that's the only escape, is what Jesus has done for us. So, already, the major judgment has already taken place. But there's some future ones. We've talked about the judgment seat of Christ. Not mentioned in the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse deals with Jewish eschatology. One of the few areas of church eschatology is the judgment seat of of Christ in the future. That deals with Christians in the church age. Deals with the church. And believers, you and I, will stand before Jesus Christ and give an account. Not for salvation. That was dealt with on the cross. And our salvation is secure. Nothing can remove it. Nothing You can't lose it. Now, some believe you can, but biblically, I don't think that's accurate, biblically. So what is in view here? And in fact, what is in view in what's called the bema, that's the Greek word, that's translated judgment seat, it's just one little small four-letter word, bema, what's in view there? If it's not salvation, then what is it? How you live your life after salvation. Now, it doesn't mean that now your salvation is at risk if you just abandon everything that uh, you know in Scripture. And there are some that may have done that, and yet they are secure in Christ. But they will lose reward, and that's the whole thing, the, the whole purpose of the Bema. And those rewards come about in that millennial kingdom, and responsibilities, further responsibilities will be given. That is the essence of what is also going on in the judgments of Matthew chapter 25. It's similar, but a different group and a different time. The bema doesn't tell us when, because church eschatology doesn't have a time frame, probably at the very beginning of that seven-year period of time, immediately after the rapture. We also have, and we spend a lot of time looking at the judgments of the tribulation period, tribulation judgments. The world system, the world today, the world system, and the world itself, the earth, is judged. It's physical, it's material, and it's spiritual. And it deals with those during that seven-year period of time. And it's a series of judgments that come about seven years, precisely according to the book of Daniel. Judgment of the enemies of God. There's an evil trinity. Now, the head of that, Satan, is not judged till the end of the millennium, he's bound for a thousand years, and then he has activity at the end, but other members, the false prophet and the antichrist, are judged at the second coming, in fact I've got this on a timeline as well, and we've been looking in Matthew chapter 25, the judgment of living Israel, now that's prophesied in passages in Ezekiel in the Old Testament, and other places as well. The judgment, and in this case, more specifically, living Israel. In other words, Israelites that become believers, or some that don't, during that seven-year period of time. Now, it appears that Old Testament believers are resurrected along with the church, the uh, rapture. So, they are dealt with, but there is a set of believers and non-believers of Jewish descent that lived during that seven-year period, and there's an evaluation for them. The passage we're looking at deals with Gentiles that live during that seven-year period of time. And they are living nations, or Gentiles. And that's the essence of the parable that we're looking at today and started last week. There's also a final, now this is the final one, this is at the end of world history, at the end of the thousand years, there's what's called the Great White Throne Judgment. That's how it's described in the Book of Revelation. And this is where all unbelievers will be resurrected. All unbelievers from all ages. And they will stand before the Lord. And because they're unbelievers, they will be cast into eternal damnation. That's in the Book of Revelation. Now. Did you say then that all the believers in Biblical will be resurrected? It appears that all Old Testament, along with believers, yeah, that's not clear, but that's even though they were believers, you have to account for every person on the face of the earth that ever lived, and that seems to be an appropriate time, because it talks about the dead in Christ will be raised first. Now, Christas, the dead in Messiah, in other words, Old Testament believers perhaps are part of that. Make sense. So those are the future judgments on a timeline. Here's the seven-year tribulation. After that, a thousand-year kingdom. Obviously, uh, not to scale. <laughs> <All right. laughs> so here we are today. With no, we don't have any idea when the rapture will take place. And at the rapture, Christians, the uh, Bema, probably doesn't give us a time frame, but that makes most sense at the beginning. And in fact, we leave time. I think. And we go into an eternal state, which may not have hours and minutes and years. Make sense? During this seven-year period, the earth, and I should spread it throughout the entire period, and the world system is judged in a series of judgments. We looked at that in the Olivet Discourse, and the bulk of the book of Revelation describes that period of time. It's a horrendous period of time. The purpose of it is primarily to bring the nation of Israel to faith in the Messiah. In Jesus Christ. Then the enemies at the second coming. And then Israel, Matthew 25, verse 1 through 30. And then Gentiles, Matthew 25, verses 31 through 46. Passage we're looking at. At the end of the thousand year, the Olivet Discourse doesn't mention it. Book of Revelation gives us unbelievers at the great white throne. So there you have it on a chronological chart. Different time frames for each different group. And again, we've been looking at applications for the kingdom. Chapter 25, Judgment of Israel, first 30 verses of 25, Judgment of the Nations, 31 through 46. We'll pick up where we left off last week very quickly, reviewing the occasion when the Son of Man comes in his glory. That's second coming in his glory, in his resurrected, glorified body. Jesus Christ returns to earth. When that happens, then everything else that he's describing takes place. And all the angels with him, we talked about that. That's described in Matthew 24, book of Revelation as well. The coming of the Messiah with the angels. He will sit on his glorious throne. He begins to reign as king and judge over a kingdom. He's sitting on his throne. And if you put all the scriptures together, it's on earth. It is visible, it's material, it's political, it's social, has physical aspects, has all of these aspects, and certainly it's spiritual, obviously. The amillennialist sees the kingdom as equal to the church. In order to do that, you have to take a lot of passages non-literally, which I think is a mistake. So we saw last time, when he comes, he comes in judgment, the occasion of this judgment of the nation's second coming. text also tells us that some of the agents that he will use is all the angels, we looked at this last time, the authority by which he will judge is his ruling throne, his kingly throne in the millennial kingdom, and he will be judge. The Son of Man comes as judge, John five says that all judgment has been delivered into his hands. And then thirty two thirty three, all the nations will be gathered before him. They're the subjects that will be involved in this judgment. So the subjects, Gentile nations, or Gentile peoples, that's a little redundant, right? Gentile nations, ethne, ethne. He will separate them from one another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. That's the that's a picture of judgment in general. God separating out evil. And the goats represent the evil that he is separating away from the sheep. So it's an image. It's a picture that was very familiar for century. And if you lived on a ranch with sheep, you have the image right before you. Or in our culture, more of you may be associated with maybe cows and horses. I don't know. Anyway... So we have subjects, Gentile nations, and the judgment is a separating out of evil. And all of these judgments are separating out of evil. The bema is a separating us out by removal, and by removal of our old nature as well, and the giving of a new nature, we are separated out, and now we will spend eternity in glorified bodies. And that's true of all of the judgments as well, separating of evil. And we said that the shepherd represents the Messiah, the sheep, Gentile living believers in this context, and the goats, Gentile unbelievers, living unbelievers that survived that seven-year period of time. And during that time, Israel is restored, and some of them, in fact, a majority of them, will believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. They'll believe in their Messiah. They'll believe that he in fact, was everything that he claimed to be in the first century. Mary Lee? Wouldn't Israel be restored? That should properly be over the kingdom, because that's occurring then. It's not occurring in the middle of the It occurs during the tribulation. Okay. You have a, a conversion, I take it. Okay, okay, I see what you're saying. In fact, at the very beginning, you have two prophets that prophesy. And I think you have an immediate response of 144,000 based on the chronology of the book of Revelation. That 144,000 are called to a particular ministry. They proclaim the gospel throughout the world. And in verse 9 of chapter 7, it seems to indicate that there's a whole multitude from every tribe, from every tongue, from every nation that are converted. Most of them are martyred, but many of them survive. So Israel is restored during the seven-year period. And this judgment in Matthew 25 is to separate out those that are believers. They go into the kingdom. Those that are not, they are killed, and they'll be resurrected in the great white throne. But also we have Gentiles that are converted from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every ethnicity, every background. Some will also respond in the midst of those great judgments. And at the second coming is the occasion for the judgment of the Gentiles. And verse 34 in our passage, through 40, is the rewarding of the righteous. And there's an analogy here. In other words, there's a very close similarity between what goes on with this rewarding and what goes on with in the lives of believers. Notice it's on the basis of works. In other words, on the basis of how they live, what they do. Salvation is on the basis of faith and faith alone, not on what you do. It's not on baptism. It's not on church attendance. It's not on good works. It's not on anything. It's by grace through faith alone. But this rewarding of the righteous in this context deals with similar to the bema. The bema, we are evaluated in terms of how did we live the Christian life after we became believers. And in this case, it's looking at Gentiles. What did they do with their salvation after they were converted? Does that make sense? We'll get into the details in a moment. So verse 34, then, in other words, on the same occasion as verse 31, when the Son of Man comes... When the separating occurs, when the judgment occurs, then, now we have kind of another analogy mixed in here, then the king, and by the way, this is uh, one of the few times, in fact the first time, where Jesus himself very directly identifies himself as the king. Did you notice kind of the mixing of metaphors there? It's a shepherd, in other words, like a shepherd, similar to a shepherd, But now, that shepherd is the king that rules. That's alluded to in verse 31, when he sits on his throne, he's ruling. And now, very overtly, the king will say to those on his right, remember, these are the ones on the right, these are the believers. And what does he say? Well, first of all, we have a son, we have the son, who is the shepherd. When the son comes, he is like a shepherd that separates sheep. And now in verse 34, the shepherd is the king, and all of them correspond to Messiah. See that? So the son equals the shepherd equals the king equals the Messiah. When he comes, then the king will say to those on his right, come. In other words, come to me or gather yourself, you who are blessed of my father. Now, there's a lot of theological points that correspond with other clear, I think, passages elsewhere that are illustrated. Now, this is not overt, but if you put together lots of other passages in the New Testament, you can come to some of the conclusions i come to. When he addresses them as blessed, one of the significance of that blessed identification, I think, is that God is fulfilling <coughs> with these people during this period of time, and he's done it with the nation of Israel, and now here is a Gentile group that are blessed, and there are aspects of the Old Testament covenants that are fulfilled in them. And those fulfillments bring blessing, all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant. Gentiles are blessed through the nation of Israel. And here they are receiving some of the end products of that blessing. So all of the covenants, all of the promises are fulfilled beginning at this time in terms of their ultimate fulfillment. It says, come, you who are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom. Now, how do you inherit the kingdom? Well, all of this is on the basis of grace. So inherit points to the grace aspect, sovereign grace, where God calls people to himself offers them the free gift of salvation and that is awaiting the believer and that is his inheritance. Now in this case it involves the kingdom as well. Inherit the kingdom by sovereign grace. In uh, Galatians five you know what the fruit. is Yes. It talks about seeds and flesh. Both of those things require them by yes, And those who those he practice these will not the of God, they will... Well, the inheritance is a big package. In other words, part of it, I think, is salvation that is not based on any works, but part of it includes the kingdom. And this aspect is stressing more the kingdom aspect. There will be believers in the kingdom who have not lived the Christian life, but are part, they have salvation, and they'll be part of the kingdom, but they will suffer loss, as 1 Corinthians says. And part of the loss is the blessings of and the rewards that are available to those that are faithful. Does that make sense? At least that's how I put it together. No, this is Gentiles. This is at the end. This is when the Son of Man comes in his glory. This is different. Different group of believers. Bema is rapture. Yeah. Church, and it probably includes Old Testament saints. Come, you are blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom, and this is interesting, prepared for you from the foundation of the world. From creation, the millennial kingdom has been, in the mind of God, in the plan of God, part of that big plan. So you can go all the way back to the book of Genesis. This is why I see the kingdom rooted in the creation when it talks about Adam and Eve been given the responsibility of subduing and what? Ruling the earth. That is the purpose of mankind as epitomized by Adam and Eve. Now that was, some of that was hindered as a result of sin and the fall. But world history is God restoring what mankind lost in the garden. So man was intended to rule, and as they have families, you have a father that rules over families. And as families grow to be tribes, you have leaders amongst them. And as tribes become nations, this is all part of God's bigger plan, nations are to rule under God, and he brings about his own nation, the nation of Israel, that was intended to rule the world, and under Solomon, or David and Solomon, some of that was partially fulfilled. But because there are sinners, sinners, sinful kings, even David, that kingdom collapsed, but it didn't remove this ultimate plan, and there's an ultimate plan in the millennial kingdom where mankind rules under Jesus Christ. This is prepared from the foundations of the world. This is part of the whole plan where, and the direction of world history that we still look forward to. So this is huge. Very clear. Prepared for you, in other words, those that are blessed, those that are believers, we are designed from the very beginning with Adam and Eve to rule. Now, under his sovereign rulership, he, as Messiah King, we rule under him, but that's part of the blessing and that's part of the inheritance. Positions of rulership under Jesus Christ. And you'd say it's in the eternal plan of God. So we have the significance here. Blessedness, fulfillment of all the covenants, to inherit sovereign grace, nothing that you and I earn or deserve, prepared unconditional election, a choice of unconditional election in eternity past. You can use Ephesians 1 for that, verse 4. From the foundation of the world, it includes an ultimate purpose of all of the creation. When God created the universe, he had a plan. Things are not just working themselves out by random means. There's a plan, and God is affecting it, and he will complete it. Now, we're in the midst of it, and we see the corruption aspect. We see the results of man's sin, and we overlook what the scriptures teach, But if God has fulfilled everything all the way to the cross, and there's hundreds of fulfilled prophecies concerning the first coming of Messiah, we can be assured that he's going to do the same at the end. How do you you apply how do I apply what? Election, ultimate unconditional election. How do you apply? I think it's a principle that applies to those that are called to God, whether it be Old Testament Church age, or in this case, tribulation saints. And you could even extend it, even though there's no verse, to those that become believers during the millennial kingdom. I see this package. When we get to the book of Romans, I'm going to try and spell that out when we get to Romans 8 in about 50 years from now. <laughs> okay? Verse 35 and 36, for and then Jesus gives the basis for this separating, the basis for this judgment. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. And notice it's all basic needs. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. The emphasis is works. So it doesn't have anything to do with salvation. It has everything to do with living it out. And the Christian life is intended that we live it out in the power of the Holy Spirit, not in our own strength, by allowing Him to live His life out. It's no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me, living, letting Him live His life out through us, responding when there's needs, we meet those needs. And this passage is applied to, in different ways, particularly today it's applied somewhat generally. I'll give you some of the different ways that it's used. But keep in mind, behind that application it has a very specific and a very direct application to a particular group, deals with the nations during the seven year period. Now you haven't heard that, probably, but in the context this is what we're dealing with. That's why you develop the context. So it's a provision of needs so, if there's hunger, we provide nourishment. If there's thirst, we provide hydration. If you have a stranger in town, you exercise hospitality the occasion it comes. Thirdly, if they need clothing, if they're naked, you cover them. If they're sick, you show compassion to them. If they're in prison, you support them. And in the first century, people that were in prison had to be supported because the prison system didn't give them color TV and Internet access. In fact, they needed covering, they needed clothing, they needed blankets, they needed food, otherwise they would starve to death in prison. In fact, they didn't even get bread and water. They might have gotten water, but very little. And in the first century, people survived on the... Support of those outside. Now today it's a little bit different. So we have support some places. Yeah. Some places, yeah. Maybe not so yeah. Iran's more like the first century in prison there. So thirty-seven, thirty-nine. Then the righteous will answer him. And the question is, you know, when did we feed you all that? Okay? Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we do all this? We're unaware of when all of this happened. 38, and when did we see you, a stranger, and invite you in? Or naked and clothe you? 39, when did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? Notice the emphasis. It goes... This could have been delivered very simply. In other words, they could have said, when did we do all these things, Lord? But the text kind of goes over it in great detail, the kind of stress... That what is in view here is a response of faith, a walk. It involves doing something. It involves ministry. So whatever's going on here deals with works. So it can't be salvation. Because that's clear in Scripture. Then verse 40, the king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them you did it to me. Who are the brothers? Constitution. Well. Very good. Very good. He's got the context. In this context, dealing with Gentiles, it pertains to the Jewish believers. Now, there's different views. Obviously, our culture, some of the missions to the disadvantaged, they kind of generalize this and say when you give to those that are, in general, in need, disadvantage in general. That's how this passage is generally applied. Now, I think the application is valid, but it omits a large portion of the teaching of the passage. Another way it's interpreted is Christian missionaries. In other words, we need to meet the needs of Christian missionaries. Well, you can apply it in that way, in a general sense, as long as you don't omit the context. In other words, teach the context, and then you can draw applications. In fact, we'll draw a similar application in our case. Needy Christians, more specifically. And that would be a valid application, but not specific in terms of the context. The best is what uh, Dave suggested here. Jewish believers, remember during the Great Tribulation, This is going to be an extremely difficult time for Christians in general, but particularly Jews. Anti-Semitism is going to be at its highest level ever in all of world history. The Tribulation is going to be worse than the Holocaust. In fact, it's going to be another Holocaust. Most Jewish believers will be killed. There will be an attempt at extermination, just like the Hitler Holocaust. Jewish believers will not have a means to make money. Revelation 13, you'll not be able to sell or buy. You can't enter into the economy. So you're going to be impoverished. You're going to be naked. You're going to be a stranger in a culture. And most of you are going to be in prison. So he's talking about those believers that are living their lives out. Now, they're doing it at great risk as well, because they could be thrown into the same prison. It's going to be an underground economy, and underground support, like a lot of underground churches around the world today, during the tribulation. So these are the Jewish believers, and at the end, it's those that survive that will be separated out. Now, so these are all, all choices, interpretations. Yes, these are the different views, different ways that they're taken. That's what I'm saying. Exactly. Very good. Glad you heard. Verse 40, The king will answer and say to them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine, even the least of them, you did it to me. Which, there's a New Testament principle that goes along with this. There is, in fact, a unity in Christ. And we see this. In fact, we'll look at a couple of uh, passages here. So get ready to look these up. Christ, the image in the New Testament, Christ is the head of the body, right? But there is a body of Christ. Now, in the New Testament, it deals with the church. And what we have in this passage is analogous to that. In other words, there's a relationship between the head and the body between Jesus Christ and what we know of as the church. And there's a unity, there's an intimate relationship. There's a similar principle at work during the tribulation in terms of Christ and those that believe in him. Now, they might not be called the body of Christ, because that is a term that refers to the church, but there's a similar analogous relationship. I think that's what's in view in this passage that's illustrated and some New Testament passages. Now, these pertain to the church. Who wants to do Matthew 10, verse 40 and 42? Connie's got it. Who wants to do Acts 9, verse 4? Dave, you got it. And in Matthew 10, Jesus is sending... These are the disciples that he's sending out. And in the context, he's sending them out to Jewish Jewish people. And in that context, Jewish people are the objects of evangelism that the disciples are going out to reach and what does Jesus say you receive, you receive. in other words those jewish people that receive you are receiving jesus christ go ahead and you receive. receive the father there's a relationship there as well keep reading and notice there's a reward there Reward the there. This is in a Jewish context. In fact, this is before the church. In Matthew ten, this is before the church comes about. The church doesn't exist till the Book of Acts, Acts chapter two. The Acts nine would apply to a church age situation. Acts nine four. This is yes, Saul's conversion. But notice in that this is where Saul realized through a vision that God gave him that Jesus is, in fact, the Jewish Messiah, and that he needs to basically trust in Messiah. And notice what the Lord tells him. He fell to the earth and heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why persecute? me? Did you get that? Why are you persecuting me, is what the text says. And who is Paul persecuting? <laughs> Believers. He was on his way to Damascus to persecute the believers in Damascus. He was persecuting those that had trusted in Jesus Christ. Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? There's this intimate relationship. See that? Okay, so there's a similar analogous relationship with Messiah and his brothers during the tribulation period. And that's the point of the passage here. So his brothers are Jewish believers that Gentile believers are reaching out to minister to. To kind of illustrate this, and there's lots of passages in the New Testament, if you, if an individual has biblical faith, this is the normal, natural outcome of that biblical faith. Biblical faith leads to a true regeneration. In other words, a rebirth, that's what Jesus describes as being born again, And that rebirth is a regenerating work of the Holy Spirit in the life of an unbeliever that brings him from death to eternal life. And that happens once, at the moment of trust, and at that moment, salvation is given in its full. We're declared righteous before a holy God. But that true regeneration should, and sometimes it doesn't, but should work itself out in an ongoing transformation where now we are conforming to the image of Christ and that transformation gives us a new sensitivity to other people, believers and unbelievers, and in that, that produces fruit, in other words, effort or works, that's why I've used that visual there, And that's what's in view. In other words, believers during the Great Tribulation that are Gentiles, they show evidence of true regeneration and, to some extent, transformation, that they risk their own lives in a very difficult situation to reach out to needy, believing Jewish people because they are going to be persecuted. And they do it at risk because they will also receive persecution if they are found out. Does that make sense? And that's the fruit. Yes, not save, but minister to those that are needy. In other words, they're hungry, feed them, they're thirsty, hydrate them, they're naked, clothe them, etc. Okay. Fruitful ministry, and we can apply this, we can apply the same principle... The principle is applicable regardless of time frame. The context deals with this particular time frame, but the principle goes beyond the time frame. That's what you do in application. Fruitful ministry involves communication, preaching, and teaching. Now, oftentimes we think, well, that's ministry. That's the obvious ministry. But sometimes we, and sometimes in Bible churches, we omit a second aspect, showing compassion to those that are needy. So, fruitful ministry also includes meeting everyday needs. And that's particularly what's in view here. Communication, preaching, and teaching. But it also involves compassion, meeting everyday needs. Remember, we mentioned in the Millennial Kingdom, there's going to be two kinds of believers And this is after this judgment. We're going to have those that enter in the millennial kingdom in spiritual bodies. That will include the church. After the rapture, we enter in spiritual bodies. But it will also include Old Testament and tribulation saints that die during tribulation. The tribulation saints that die, that also includes Old Testament believers. And there's also going to be mortal believers. We talked about this when we talked about the millennial kingdom. And we're going to have mortal living Israelites that survive the seven year tribulation. And they will be believers. We saw that Matthew 25, 1 through 30. And this passage deals with living Gentiles. That survive and are separated and enter the kingdom. And now they're receiving their reward because they were showing compassion to the Jewish believers who were in need. Now, it may be broader than that, but at least the Jewish believers. Connie? Sorry, I, I, I was thinking that about... It is the Millennial Kingdom. So how do you... This is the ones that enter the Millennial Kingdom. There's going to be some in resurrection bodies, there's going to be some in mortal bodies, and they will come from living Israel. In other words, the mortals will survive the seven-year tribulation. They're believers... And they're alive after the seven years. Gentiles in this passage that survive that enter in, and their reward will be spelled out in other. When are they helping During the tribulation, during this severe period. David, the passage in Revelation chapter twelve alludes to it. The dragon saw he's cast in the earth, he executed woman the man child. The woman is Israel, and the woman was given two wings of a great eagle, and she went quiet to the wilderness. To a place where she's nourished. Mm-hmm. Right. For a time and a half. Right. Where does she get where nourishment? Place, yeah. Where does she get nourishment from? Probably these. Yeah. Right. Good point. Okay, let's uh, look at the end of the passage here. Then he, who's the he? God. The king, the shepherd, the son, the Messiah. Then he will also say to those on his left. Now he's going to deal with those on the left. Those are The first group are those that are on the right that are the believers. And they will receive a reward. Inherit the kingdom. And all that goes with it. And the rewards. Now he's going to deal with those on the left. The liberals, right? (laughs) Okay, and he's going to say, Depart from me, accursed ones. Cursed ones. They're unrighteous. They've rejected the Messiah. They're unbelievers. Into eternal fire. Unbelievers, which has been prepared for, this is another thing. There are only four places when the word, the word prepared in the Greek text that's here, two of them are in this context. The kingdom is prepared for believers. Part of the eternal plan of God for believers. Hell is designed or prepared for the devil and his angels. It's not prepared for humans even. But because humans align themselves by rejecting Jesus Christ and not trusting in what he's done for them, they are cast along with him eventually at the great white throne but it's prepared for the devil and his angels or demonic spirits. Interesting. 42 to 43 and I don't have it highlighted because it's almost identical to what we've already said. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me nothing except the negation here. I was a stranger, you did not invite me in naked, you did not clothe me sick and in prison, you did not visit me. They did the very opposite. In other words, they they had no sensitivity whatsoever because they had no spiritual insight, no spiritual motivation. Verse 44, Then they they themselves also will answer, Lord, and we have the answer, it's very similar to the believers, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not take care of you. In other words, we don't have a memory of not responding to you. Well, we're going to have a similar answer. Then, verse 45, then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. See the alternative there. And it's almost identical except the negation of it. So, is dealing with the unbeliever. So we have a distinction that's made. The unregenerate have a disregard for the believers. They're they're just self-centered. They're just on their own. They don't think in terms of it any needs because they don't have regeneration, so they don't have transforming attitudes or transformed attitudes, so they don't respond. And what is distinct, the regenerate have a ministry to believers, and Jesus equates that with ministry to him directly. So the basis of this judgment, the last part there is how they treated Israel. So the basis of judgment in this place, always, the basis of judgment, there are always acts of commission. In other words, those things that you do that are violations of God's standards. It's part of the judgment. What's in view here, however, in fact, dealing with Israel as well, so acts of commission, not only are they great evils, but acts of omission. In other words, not doing the things that God wants us to do. This is always the case. And in this passage, failure to trust Christ and trust in Him in in a way that uh, shows compassion to others. It's always the basis of judgment. What you do overtly, but also what you don't do, that you should do. Very good. So we can apply this. Be careful not to minimize sin. Sin involves both both acts of commission and acts of omission. Demonstrate your faith through loving works. And we can do it on a broad basis. The principle is the same that we can apply. But keep in mind that the passage is not dealing with us. It's dealing with a people in the future. But we can draw applications. It's a valid application. And then the passage concludes in verse 46. It kind of emphasizes the eternal destiny. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. So he even looks beyond the millennial kingdom in the Olivet Discourse. He doesn't expand it, and he doesn't detail it, but the rest of Scripture gives us the detail. There's a thousand-year millennial kingdom, and then there's an eternal state. Jesus kind of jumps to the eternal state here, and the unbeliever goes into eternal punishment. If we had time, we could develop that concept of uh, eternal punishment. The essence of this parable, living Gentiles, this is the context, will be judged at the second coming, some entering, and some excluded from the millennial kingdom. And you can also read the, uh, the analogy with Israel. Israel has two parables. This one only has one, but what's also involved is probably lifestyle as well. And rewards as well. Make sense? We completed the Olivet Discourse. Alright. Closing thought. Ministry, including evangelism, is the work of all disciples. Ministry involves all of us. And all of us will stand and give an account. Let's close. Who wants to close? Great. Father, thank you for um, for you, the word, Lord. I pray that we have desire to learn more about you, Father. So thank you for the array and the gifts that you have provided him. We just need to assess you would in this class. The learnings that we get from you to stay here. We will be that, that, that light and that soul to the world, Lord. Us that give us the words that you have chosen for us. Father, this is in your name. Amen. Amen.